0: Guys, let's get those Bibles out. Turn them to John chapter 18. Lord, as we come to your word, change us. Give us a broken heart in mourning over our sin and a heart of rejoicing in The triumph of the cross and the resurrection. And we pray that as we observe the trial of Jesus, uh, in a first part of that trial, that it would just give us really good and healthy perspective on our trials and our strugglings, Lord. And uh, we pray that you would mold us and make us uh, into the image of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys. So, John chapter 18, looking at verses 13 through 27. Here we see Jesus tried before the Jews. Uh, As I mentioned a few uh, weeks ago, this has been called the great travesty of justice. One preacher said, in the annals of history, in the laws of jurisprudence, no travesty of justice has ever taken place like this one. Uh, as we see the travesty of ju- justice against Jesus, a total mockery of justice. Um, as he's falsely accused, as he's illegally tried, illegally condemned to death, and eventually executed. Um, at the same time, it's also the opposite of that. And I had to look up, what's the opposite of a travesty? Uh, just back there, I was like, hey, hey Siri, what's the opposite of travesty? And she said... Uh, that an antonym of travesty would be homage or tribute. So to the Jews, and in the Jews' sense, and even with Pontius Pilate, it was a great travesty, a mockery, a joke of justice. But in God's sovereign plan on how to redeem mankind, it was a great tribute to justice. Because as we're going to see in a little bit, 2 Corinthians 5.27 says, It was the great exchange where the just was given as a sacrifice for the unjust. The just for the unjust. Every one of us being unjust, sinners condemned to the wrath of God for all eternity. Uh, A holy God who cannot just wink at sin or, or turn his way away from sin and pretend that it didn't happen. He's got to, as a just God, deal with sin and he did that in that great act of judgment and justice at the cross of Calvary where Jesus took on himself the sins of the world and then by faith anyone who would believe in him would receive Jesus's righteousness Jesus's clean slate so i like that that at the cross of Calvary we see that great tribute and homage to justice even though satan ended up through his workings creating that travesty. Let's check out verse 13 of our text. This is after the betrayal in the garden of Gethsemane. We studied that two weeks ago. They've arrested, they've bound Jesus in verse 13, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So uh, you might be reading a lot of names that are new to you, and it's a little bit confusing. Even if you kind of know the names, it's still confusing. And Here's a bit of the reason. Uh, in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, rather, the high priest was supposed to serve a lifelong term. However, through Roman rule, uh, they would often be appointed new high priests all the time, and sometimes there would be multiple high priests at the same time. In this point of history, we have Annas, who has been kind of the chief high priest for quite a while, um, but over the course of uh, Roman rule, no less than five of his sons would also rule as high priests at the same time. And so uh, we're going to read a little bit and study a little bit about these guys. But uh, we're reading about Annas, and then we've got his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who also has kind of got a role at this time. He's going to come up. Annas is going to come up. And it can be a bit confusing. But let's go ahead and check out Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look at verse 57 and we're going to read a little bit of Matthew's account. I, I have a hard time teaching a book, uh, like a gospel, and not seeing what the synoptic gospel also had to say about the situation. Um, might be a weakness of mine. Some guys are like, just stick to John because he wrote it that way for a reason. I'm like, yeah, but Matthew also said this cool thing. So that's what we're doing. Matthew chapter 26, look into verse 57. And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Hop to verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses Look, now you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he's deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? And so Matthew gets into a little more detail of some of the conversation, some of the interrogation that took place in this high courtroom drama, you know, a Perry Mason mystery, you know, or a law and order episode here uh, titled The King of Kings, you know. And so in John's, we don't get too much about what they questioned him. In Matthew's gospel, we hear a little bit more. We hear a little of the false witness testimony and uh, and that the high priest was involved in this interrogation. Um, John hops around a little bit, has a bit of a parenthesis statement here, where he tells us about Caiaphas for a moment. He went and saw Annas. We're going to talk about Caiaphas for a second. Going to go back to what Annas had to say to him. Then we're going to go to Caiaphas's trial with him. So if your ear just didn't start leaking clear fluid, then you're not paying attention. Okay, verse 14. Here's the bit of a parenthesis. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. You guys, this verse, verse 14, is just epic. It is so amazing. It takes us back to John chapter 11, where this prophecy was made by Caiaphas. Will you flip back there with me? John 11, 45 This was after Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jews witnessed Lazarus being risen from the dead. And instead of being believers in Jesus and giving their hearts and lives over to Jesus as Messiah, uh, they were more concerned about what's this going to do to their popularity and their ratings as Jewish leaders. And so in John 11, 45, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider... That it is expedient com okay. It is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. All right, you guys, Caiaphas. Caiaphas is a character we're going to look at right now. His personal name was Joseph. He had been high priest since AD 18, appointed as that post by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus, the son-in-law to Annas. We already know that from John 18. Been high priest uh, for many years now contained uh, a lot of authority and we know that John told us in verse 11 that it was a remarkable year that he would be the high priest why would it, why was this chapters 11 through 18 that we're at right now why is it a remarkable year to be the high priest over Israel because Jesus is just about to die they're just about to kill the messiah Jews for thousands and thousands of years, about 4,000 years, have been waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue them from the curse of the garden and the serpent. And what do they do instead of receiving him? They kill him, okay? I'm not saying that they're the only ones responsible to kill him, but they killed him, okay? And uh, it was a remarkable year. It was a remarkable year. The Holy Spirit was moving. Only John and Matthew mentioned Caiaphas by name in connection to Jesus' death. In Luke chapter 3 verse 2, Annas and Caiaphas are high priests the year that Zechariah goes into the Holy of Holies and is seeing the angel and told that he is going to have a son even though his wife is barren. Annas and Caiaphas were high priests that time. In Acts chapter 4 verses 5 through 7, fast forward to the future when Peter and John go to the temple to pray and begin witnessing the gospel on Solomon's porch. Annas and Caiaphas were high priests and are going to persecute the early church in the book of Acts. And so this Annas, the son-in-law of, uh, I'm sorry, Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, uh, high priest, been so for many years, about oh 18 years now, speaks up to his homies who are concerned that Jesus is going to take away their position and their nation. And he just flat out tells them, you guys don't know anything at all. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian who worked for the Romans, Sadducees had a reputation for rudeness, even among one another. They were stone cold, and evidence of this is seen in the abruptness that Caiaphas breaks in with his colleagues and says, you know nothing at all, or maybe more freely, you don't know what you're talking about, right? These guys are all worried, and there's something about him as the high priest where the Lord's still moving. And he says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything at all. It's the opening blast from Caiaphas in John 11. You don't know what you're talking about. And in John 11:50, 50, we're going to be in 11 for just a minute. He says, nor do you consider that it's expedient. These two phrases, consideration and expediency, speak of understanding and taking things into account. Realizing something. You guys are over here complaining about Jesus working a miracle and maybe taking away our prestige, but you don't understand. The original Greek says that it's better for you. It's actually advantageous or profitable is what expedient means. It's profitable and to your advantage that one guy dies for everyone. In what he's saying, he doesn't even realize it. He's prophesying what's going to happen in a matter of a couple of weeks where we're at here in John chapter 18. You don't realize that it's expedient that this one guy, you can't even calculate or work out on a piece of scratch paper, that such and such of a course of action would be the right course of action for what we need as the Jewish people. Jesus must die for the people, is what Caiaphas says back in chapter 11. He's using sacrificial high priestly language. It causes all the other Jews in the room for their minds to go back to the day of atonement and the two lambs that would be brought to him where the high priest would set his hands on one lamb and confess the sins of the people and send that lamb out into the wilderness where who knows what really ever happened to that lamb out there. And then over here on this end of things, that this lamb would also die and be, have its blood shed for the sins of the people. Caiaphas, without even realizing it, pictures expiation, which is the removal of the covering of sin. And he's speaking forth here, propitiation, which is the pacifying of the just wrath of somebody, as he's speaking forth something that's necessary, one guy's got to handle it for everybody else. When Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for or on behalf of the children of God, he reminds us in chapter 11 and then we're reminded in John chapter 18 that someone else must satisfy our debt of sin. And it can be said for 2021 Primeville just as much it could be, as it could be said for 33 A.D. Jerusalem. It's better for us. Do you realize that it's to our advantage, people, that one man would come and die for us and take the wrath of God upon himself rather than all of us having the wrath of God poured out on us? And that's kind of common sense, isn't it? That's something that all of our action movies show. One guy, you know, letting go of the bridge, you know, to go down and whatever. You know, there's that one guy, that sacrificial scene in the action, the Bruce Willis or whatever, you know. And we all love it. Oh, he sacrificed his life, you know, or he jumped on the alien or, you know, there's all sorts of movies out there. Whatever you're into, right? Our hearts love these great action movies with heroes, because they all prompt us to what our hearts are longing for, the great champion of heaven, the great hero of heaven, Jesus Christ, who's that one man who came and died so that the sins of everyone could be forgiven. And he says there that the whole nation wouldn't be lost, that the whole nation wouldn't perish. If the safety of the nation could be secured by one man's death, It was a matter of good, wise calculating that one man should go ahead and die. FF Bruce said in such a situation, he would die for the people, the Jewish community referred to there. But also, he goes on to say, John comments on it, not just for the Jewish people, but for all the people who will ever live in any nation ever, anywhere. And we should all clap at that because that's us right here. Thousands of years later, a bunch of crazies on the west coast of the United States who just show up and receive the grace of God. That is the goodness of God. That is the grace and the mercy of God. And there's not one of us that doesn't need such an outpouring of the riches of His mercy because we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the wrath of, wrath of God against ungodliness has been revealed. The book of Romans tells us the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so Jesus would die today. We find ourselves in chapter 18 where he's in trial before his death. Sadly, the Jewish nation would perish anyways. Um, There's a wonderful work that the Lord is doing in the gospel of bringing Jews back to Jesus. But in the case of John 11 and in the case of John 18, with Caiaphas' prophecy and what he said, justice was sacrificed to expediency. And justice took second place over jurisprudence. It's going to be a sham trial. It's going to be a travesty of justice. They are going to cheat and lie, to get their way, to get it done before Passover, to be rid of this guy, and they're going to break every rule in the legal book. It's a travesty. But behind it all, our sovereign God is working to make that beautiful picture of justice take place. If you're still in John 11, look at verse 51. Caiaphas did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. You guys have all heard the phrase, even a broke clock is right twice a day. Lindsay, I'm not always wrong. I mean, twice a day, I'm, she's like, no, always, Yep, yeah. yeah. Or as Trapp put it, wholesome sugar may be found in the poisonous cane. Or a precious stone can be found on a toad's head. Is that true? I don't know about that. Any biology people out there? Or a flaming torch can still be held in a blind man's hand. That's what's going on right here with Caiaphas. The high priest may not have intended to use language that could be intended to use as sacrificial, but his words very well mean that Jesus is devoted to death as that scapegoat on the day of atonement, as that offering to ward off disaster for his people. It was Carson that said, when Caiaphas spoke, God was also speaking, even if they were not saying the same things. Caiaphas spoke as a prophet, partly by virtue of the fact that he was the high priest, partly by virtue of the fact that it was that faithful year that Jesus had to die, and to die for the nation, which is also sacrificial language speaking of the ransom that Jesus paid with his own blood. Look in Mark chapter 10 verse 45, it's the key verse of the book of Mark, just in case you're wondering, for even the Son of Man Jesus did not come to be served, which was his right, but rather to serve, and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. I love that word ransom, it speaks of paying the price to set someone free from the auction block of slavery, and every one of us was in slavery to sin. And to death, with the wrath of God upon us, but that ransom price of Jesus, his precious blood, he came as a servant and laid down his life to release the shackles. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, here we have that great exchange. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's that great exchange, Second Corinthians 5:21. It shows what happened when that ransom price was paid, that we became the righteousness of God, and He became sin for us. Leon Morris said, both Caiaphas and John the Apostle understand that Jesus' death was substitutionary. Either Jesus dies or the nation dies. If he dies, the nation lives. It is his life instead of theirs. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Or Titus two fourteen. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, And purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good work. So we're talking ransom prices being paid. We're talking sacrificial, substitutionary atonement. Sacrificial living. Caiaphas' words reveal a second perspective on Jesus' death. God planned Caiaphas' words to serve his own purpose. Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 23. This is after Jesus died, after Jesus rose again, after Jesus ascended to heaven, after Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to be upon Christians so they would be bold witnesses. And this first day of being a bold witness, Peter's preaching the gospel to a couple thousand Jews who just, you know, 40 days earlier crucified Jesus. And here Peter says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so you have kind of two things happening in that verse. Uh, You have the determined, foreordained plans and purposes of God who sees everything before it happens. That's called God's sovereignty. And then you've got these guys that are responsible for killing Jesus. They made that real choice and decision to do just that. So whatever the high priest's intention was, John views his words as expressing a nobler purpose than Caiaphas even had in mind. I think it was F.F. F. Bruce here who said, John treats Caiaphas' words as a prophecy of the vicarious character of Jesus' death and adds something that's not implicit in the high priest's language, that Jesus' death would be endured not only for the Jewish nation, but for all mankind. Maybe your version says, for the life of the world. And let's look at that. John eleven fifty two. 52. It wasn't for that nation only. But also that he would gather together in one. The children of God who were scattered abroad. Almost every week guys. You're going to be hearing about the missionary heart of God. Okay. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all missionaries. All right. They understand that there's a mission to save mankind from their sin and thus glorify God in that, okay? And so as you read the Bible, read it with that missionary lens that is the context from Genesis through Revelation. Caiaphas is speaking it out just for really the leadership of the Jews in the Supreme Court right there. John understands the prophecy to be wider than that and to actually be for the whole entire world and everyone who would ever live. Caiaphas' words were not big enough. John had a worldwide vision. And you guys, that is a vision that we need to have. As we begin John 18 and we study the trial of Jesus. Where he's going to be beaten and, and bruised and bleed for the sins of the world. He's going to be nailed to that Roman cross A lot of times we just let it end with us. Like, thank you, Lord, for dying for me. Now I'm going to go live for myself. But the context of the Bible when you read it is that the blessings of God never end with me. Now they go through me to the rest of the world. And now I get to go out and tell everybody of the saving ways of God. That they can enjoy his saving purposes. That they can now know Forgiveness of sin and how to be reconciled to their creator. And then they go on and do the same thing. And so the great multiplication takes place and the image and glory of God is spread across the whole world. Little side note, little missiology for you. In the last 2,000 years since Jesus sent out his apostles and disciples to tell the world about Jesus, only half of the world's population currently have ever heard the gospel, okay? Okay. Uh, Only half of the world's population have any sort of active discipleship happening where it's at least more than 2% Christian where people are going out and they're telling other people about Jesus. And there's a church maybe in that village or in that community. Half of that, half is, or half of, the other half, I should say, the other half, is considered unreached people groups. That means that half the population right now, so half of about, I think, 11 billion people or so, That half are unreached people. All right? There is no active discipleship happening in those tribes or in those villages. There might be a couple Christians, but it's still considered unreached with the gospel. Typically, these places are unreached for a reason because there's great persecution if anybody were ever to become a Christian. Uh, They would be killed, they would be tortured, um, their families would be killed. They would be ostracized from their community, kicked out of their um, <clears throat> you know, schools and things like that. Or it's just really hard to get into these places. We're talking the Himalayas. We're talking the deserts. We're talking um, the jungles. These are hard places to get into anyways. So in the great human history, at 11 billion people or so right now, only half the world is considered reached for the gospel. By God's grace, we're living in one of those places right now. But half of the half, are still considered unengaged unreached, which means in 2,000 years, nobody is even trying whatsoever to go there with the gospel. It's so dark. It's so hard to get into. There's so much demonic stuff going on. The borders are closed. There's nothing happening. And so what that does for us is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9. He says that's where we go to pray. And we go to pray that God would send out workers into the harvest field. And we always have open hearts to say, and here I am, Lord. Maybe there's some connection that I can get in there. Our lives are blank checks. As God is a missionary God, we are missionary people, amen? All right, and so this verse is important because it says that Caiaphas' words were not just prophecy for the Sanhedrin. were not just prophecy for the Jewish nation, even though that may have been what he was intending it for. But John comments in John uh, chapter 11, and he says it was for the whole world, that that one man would die. It was necessary. It was expedient that that one man, Jesus, would die for the sins of the entire world, that he could draw to himself all the children of God, all those, as Chris talked about last week, who have been predestined for salvation. All right. You guys are totally bored right now. I can tell. It's like, man, it's only the best rescue story in all of history. All these dumb movies out there, Netflix, Hulu, whatever else you're subscribing to. We're spending a ton of money on subscriptions right now. Lots of good movies. And they're all just trying to be like, how can we rework the gospel to make it be something more palatable for people? You know, have more explosions, you know, and more lust and more this and that and the other. And it's like, Oh man, that's something that's just so beautiful about the chosen right now is it's just like, it's just some good old like basically reading the Bible and seeing what it would have been like to be there and watching Jesus in action. All right, verse 15. And we're back in John chapter 18. You thought the day would never come. Hey, John started it. Like a little like, oh, and by the way, it was Caiaphas who had the prophecy, you know what I'm saying? Okay, now we're at 15, and now we come back to the scene of the trial. Only it's outside of the courthouse. It's outside of Caiaphas' house where we're now taken. Verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest Um, many believe that other disciple was John and he's kind of vague when he talks about himself in his own gospel. Um, and so, uh, there's a lot of evidence that it's John and somehow he knew the family of Caiaphas and had access, had that VIP all access pass, you know, on his clip to his shirt and he could just show it and maybe like, and this is my guest, Peter, so let him come in with me. And so they went in there and verse 17, the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. You may remember that earlier, Jesus had already told Peter that he would deny him. And Peter said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm Peter, right? I'm the rock. You told me that. And I will never deny you. Even if I have to die, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, you don't even know yourself. You know, you're going to deny me. And he gives stipulations on the time frame when that would happen and, uh, and so here we have denial number one in verse 17. Interesting, the servant girl did not ask John or whoever that was, if he was a follower of Jesus. Only asked Peter here. Um, the form of the question suggests either that the expected answer is no, or more likely that this is a cautious assertion. It may not have been a hostile question so much as a cynical question. But Peter, who is a coward by his surrounding, keep in mind that just about an hour before, he lopped off a guy's ear, okay, uh, while, while, the guy, while his best friend was being arrested. So no doubt, have you ever had traumatic stuff happen, a car accident, or you hurt somebody, and you're like, adrenaline's flowing, and you're just making weird decisions, and you can't believe you're saying the things that you say? And here Peter is, you know, he's already, like, watched his master betrayed, lopped off a dude's ear, you know, walked across the country, across the hill again. Now he's like in the enemy's territory and you know he's just not walking in strength right now. And here he has a shameful descent of down, down, down. Peter's going down, okay? Uh, let's look in verse 18. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there for it was cold and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. It's interesting. Only John mentions that it was a charcoal of fire. Perhaps John was a kindred spirit to Hank Hill, king of the hill, who only likes to warm himself by propane and propane accessories, right? Um, He's like, it was a charcoal fire going on there. Thanks for that info, John. Anyways, could we get back to the, the trial of the son of God? Okay. All right, fine. Back to the trial. Verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Now, John doesn't really get into that, but Matthew did, and we read that a little bit earlier. Um, Annas is now the one who uh, is asking these things, asking Jesus about who else is with you, who else is speaking forth these things that could cause some sort of a revolt. Um, This Annas was known to be a wicked, wicked man, Always accommodating himself to the Roman authorities, a horrible person. Really, many commentaries I read likened Annas to the Godfather. Okay, like he was just a guy that was like a high roller, and he was a guy that shuffled things around. And the things that you say they really offend me right now. You know, Uh, so just picture the Godfather whenever you hear of Annas. The Talmud says, "Woe to the house of Annas! Woe to their serpent's hiss!" They are high priests. Their sons are keeper of the treasury. Their sons-in-laws are guardians of the temple. And their servants beat people with staves. So Annas, Caiaphas, the other brothers that were all high priests and sons-in-laws, these were bad hombres. These were the godfather and all of his cronies. Charles Spurgeon says, at any rate, the Lord has led to Annas first. And we feel sure that there was a motive for that act. Annas, in some sense, had a priority in the peerage of enmity to Jesus. He was malignant, cruel, and unscrupulous enough to be the premier ministry of persecutors. Okay? So we don't really know what questions were asked. We just know he's brought before the Godfather. Okay? Um, And I know that's a really good Godfather impression. So just try not to be jealous. Okay. Verse 20. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. So Jesus is saying there's been no secret calls to sedition. Trapp says, truth is bold and barefaced where heresy hides itself and loathes the light. Essentially the false witnesses here that Matthew spoke of, they don't really have any good case. But Jesus openly is bold and barefaced. In 21, he says, why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me. What I said to them, indeed, they know what I've said. I've got nothing to hide. Verse 22, and when he'd said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? And so this is, in John, the first blow to Jesus this night. There will be many more. It's with the palm of the hand. I never really took many martial arts class. I did P90X, you know tempo cardio, one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, hit with the palm of the hand, hit with the palm of the hand, hit with the, there was not that part in there, it was all hi-yah, wah, 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 wah. okay, and uh, palm, you know, gotta hurt, palm of the hand to Jesus's face, and thus begins the blows to Jesus, in Job sixteen ten. there's a prophecy of this, where it was written foreshadowing Jesus, that they gape at me with their mouths, and they strike me reproachfully on the cheek, They gather together against me. So, striking and smiting reproachfully on the cheek. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I realize you guys are reading ESV here. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. And I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. In Jeremiah 20, verse 2, we have a a picture of Jesus through Jeremiah the prophet. When Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. And so these were all foreshadowings and things that pointed to Jesus taking our blows, being our whipping boy for us, taking upon him our sin. In verse 23 of our text today, Jesus answered him, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? in Polina, we're in the latter chapters of the book of acts this sunday will be there as well and paul is being put on trial by the high priest as well and the apostle paul answers the high priest and he's struck by the high priest's servant and uh what does paul say to the high priest he says god will strike you you whitewashed wall And then the high priest's servant says, is that how you revile the high priest you're talking to? And he goes, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, I did not know that I was talking to the high priest, for it is written, you shall not revile the Lord's leaders.' You know, all that. All right. Here we have Jesus get struck, and he doesn't revile back. We're going to study that when we close in Peter. Instead, he says, look, if I said something that's illegal or slanderous or seditious or wrong, like, then I deserve it. But why are you striking me? It needs to be a legal thing that you're doing here, essentially, is what Jesus says. And they ignore him, essentially. Then Annas sent him bound, verse 24, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Why don't you go ahead and uh, look in Luke 22:63, 63? Where the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him in the face. And they asked him, saying, prophesy Who's the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their courts, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And so he said to them, "You rightly say that I am." and they said, "What further testimony do we need for we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth in your old time you can read Mark's gospel chapter 14 verse 57 in parallel and contrast now in our text, John 1825 flash back out out to the uh, access, uh, propane accessories, no the king of the hill. Um, The charcoal grill in verse 25, Simon Peter stood warming himself and they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. So there we have denial number two in verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And so this next accusation is from someone. And imagine you were in a garden. You watched, uh, let's say, your cousin, who's a state trooper, you know, um, get his ear lopped off. And then the guy that was with the guy with the sword heals it. Like, you're observing the people and what's going on in this craziness, right? And, And so here's this relative. And she's like, man, like, I know that you're the one that lopped off the ear of my cousin, you know, Malchus. And so, I didn't I see you in the garden there with him? And Peter denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Let's look at Mark 14, 69, and we'll look at Luke twenty two fifty eight 58 as we're wrapping up here. The servant girl saw him again, began to say to those who stood by, this is Mark 14, 69, this is one of them. But he denied it again, and a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you're one of them, you're a Galilean, you talk like a redneck. Your speech shows it. Verse 71, then he began to curse and swear. And it's interesting, Mark, just a total normal guy writing to Romans, says he was so vehemently opposed to being Jesus' disciple here, he started cussing. started cursing. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And a second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the words that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Listen what Luke says, twenty-two, fifty-eight. After a little while, another saw him and said, You also are one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also is with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then this is just so much drama. It's almost too much. Look at it. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. So Peter's going to be in this state of mind of just... Denying Jesus, denying Jesus. I'll never deny you. I'm totally denying you. And then looking up, probably as Jesus being led out of Caiaphas's house to go to Pontius Pilate, and looking at Jesus in the eye on his way out, and thinking that that's the last I ever saw of Jesus. That's the last Jesus ever heard of me was a denial. I'm so glad we're in the Gospel of John because it's John that is going to put great effort in chapters 20-21 about the restoration of Peter and that he doesn't have to stay in that place of condemnation for failure. And that's a good word for all of us today, isn't it? We'll have the worship team come back up because Jesus is going to be led to, uh, to Pontius Pilate next. And as we're having the team come up, let's go to 1 Peter 2.21. We're going to revisit 1 Peter 2.21 when we're in John again next time. This is I'm telling you guys, this is a memory verse. This is what we call applying the gospel to our lives and our daily situations and circumstances. And Paul is going to do that um, here for us. I'm sorry, Peter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, and I I only have it written down a certain bit. I'm just going to turn there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go to chapter three. First Peter, chapter three. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands that even if some of them do not obey the word, they without a word will be won by the conduct of their husbands or of their wives. I mean, you know, whatever. I'm just kidding. Yeah, definitely says wives there. Okay, so wives, likewise, be submissive to your husbands. Essentially, he's going to say, even if he's a big old jerk, likewise, submit to your husbands. And that's when we say, wives, like what? And it takes us back in context to 1 Peter chapter 2, to verse 21, where it says, to this you were called, wives. Husbands, employers, citizens of the state of Oregon, all right, to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore all our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Do you get it? Peter is applying the gospel to daily life and living, to circumstances where even when it's hard and there's a travesty of justice in your life, there's a travesty of justice in your state, there's a travesty of justice on your social profile, and people are saying all kinds of things and slandering you. Peter says, you guys, just disconnect for a second. Step back. Remember Jesus, who truly never did anything wrong, who really was innocent, who only did good, and was only nice and kind and benevolent his entire life, and how he was wrongly accused, falsely slandered, had reproaches fall upon him, was beaten, bruised, mocked, and scorned, and he never reviled back, and he never punched back, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher back in the 1800s, very famous guy. Back in his own day, he was famous. But people hated him. Even other preachers in London hated him. And newspaper writers would write all kinds of journalistic trash about him and just slander him and slander him. And every day there was something about him in the newspaper. And he writes in his book on leadership, Spurgeon on leadership, he says, He's like, are you being mocked and are you being slandered out there in public? He says, listen to me and listen good. I'm telling you, don't ever revile back. Don't ever defend yourself. Trust yourself to him who judges righteously. Charles Spurgeon on leadership just says, hey, look at Jesus. He's the great example on how to live when there's a travesty of justice. Amen. Amen. Let's go and set our things aside and we'll move towards a final song of worship here. Will you all stand with me?